Hey everybody, this is Brian Zimmerman here to introduce another very special episode of Jazz is Not What You Think. Now on this week's podcast, Jazz's publisher Michael Fagan sits down with guitar legend George Benson. They discuss the guitarist's brand new album, Walking to New Orleans, Remembering Chuck Berry and Fats Domino. Now, a version of this story runs in our summer 2019 issue, which is just about to mail to subscribers. So to read it and a whole lot more reviews, interviews, articles, and features, uh, be sure to visit us online and click that big red subscribe button in the upper left-hand corner to become a print subscriber today. Well, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into this discussion between guitar legend George Benson and Michael Fagan. We hope you enjoy. Hi, this is George Benson, and you're looking... Jazz is not what you think. George, it's been way too long. Thank you so much for doing this. Oh, man, my pleasure. <laughs> well, that's great. Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, I've been a fan of yours forever and, um, I want to talk about the new record, uh, but I wanted to tell you first, you know, I was talking to Pat Metheny a few years back, and we got into a discussion about other jazz guitarists. And as you know, Pat's pretty passionate and outspoken, especially when it comes to what's jazz and what's not jazz. Yeah. But when I mentioned your name, he said something that resonated with me, and I have quoted him many times, and he said, George Benson is probably one of the best guitarists ever. But if I had a voice like his, I probably would have never picked up the guitar. <laughs> well, one thing, he's always been my friend, man. I always loved that young fellow, and his potential from the very beginning was so tremendous, and he lived up to all of it. And then now the world knows what I suspected when I first heard him play and first met him in the Boston at the Jazz Workshop many years ago. Oh, either at Berkeley School of Music. I can't remember which one's first. Yeah, I think it was Berkeley. But what a wonderful fellow. Yep, yep, and a fan of yours, too. So so I'm going to go back in memory lane a little bit before we talk about the new record. It was my first year in college. You know, I was into, you know, the Beatles, Stevie Wonder, progressive rock, and I only had one jazz album in my entire vinyl collection. And it was actually, it was uh, romantic, uh, it was R- Return to Forever's Romantic Warrior. And that yeah, it just, you know, it, it resonated with me as a rocker. And, you know, back then, as you know, radio was still breaking artists. And one day I'm in the car and this masquerade comes on uh, the radio. And, you know, recall back then, you know, back announcements were a problem. You know, you hear something, you wouldn't know who it was. And I turned it up, immediately noticing this just incredible fluidity of the guitar, the strings, this beautiful voice that sounded familiar, but I didn't know you at the time, and I couldn't put my finger on it. Is this Stevie Wonder or someone that sounds like Stevie? Or I couldn't tell. And after doing some digging, I learned about and, of course, bought the vinyl version of Reason. And from you, I learned about Jorge Adalto, Harvey Mason, Phil Upchurch, Ronnie Foster, Ralph McDonald, and of course, Klaus Ogerman, who I became a huge fan of, and someone who became a good friend of mine who I miss so much, Tommy LaPuma. Yeah. 
And, and I know you and Tommy go way back. Yeah, wonderful fellow, man. You know what he said to me to change my whole life? He came to hear us play in San Francisco at a place called Keystone Corner. And I always like to quote Freddie Hubbard. He said, you know where Keystone Corners is? Right over there next to the Keystone Cops. You know, because the police station is right across the street. <laughs> oh, right next door, actually. <laughs> so it's a, it was a great nightclub. Well, one evening, Tommy LaFuma came in with uh, uh, Bob Krasnow, his partner. They yeah. owned Blue Thumb Records together, and they recorded the first region with uh, the Boys of Old. Yeah. And so he came in, he had, uh, Bob had on a Buck Bunny jacket. <laughs> yeah, he had a Warner Brothers jacket that had Buck Bunny on the back. And I had heard that they were going to approach me with a record deal, but I wasn't sure it was going to happen. When I saw that Buck Bunny, I said, well, the guy knew what he was talking about. But Tommy, after we talked, Tommy said, you know, I, when I came on the stand, I heard you sing five years ago. And he said, I cannot understand why the record company is not using your voice. When he said that, after I signed the deal with Warners, I asked for him to be the producer. But if there was going to be a vocal on it, I wanted somebody who respected my voice. A lot of people didn't, and he did. Wow. I thought we were yeah, Tommy. Yeah, Tommy, Tommy was he, – he knew. He, he, he knew it right away. So um, – Let's talk about the new record first. Let's, uh, you know, walking to New Orleans. This is like your 40th or 50th album. Uh, you know, I, I, I have all of 45 and 50. <laughs> and, and, and what I found interesting is that it's on Provogue Records, which is part of the mascot label group, which is in the Netherlands. And yes. what I also and and, a, and kind of a Rocky Blues label, which kind of is befitting to the new record. Yes, and I'm gonna tell you why I made that move. If I put out a record in the United States with a, 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 a U.S. record company, the first thing they would do is try their best to get it played on smooth jazz radio. I didn't need another hit on smooth jazz radio. <laughs> That's for sure. Because commercially, it has, it, it has no effect on your career. It's just mm -hmm. another smooth jazz hit, which I was getting anyway. I was getting number one. Every record we put out went straight to number one on smooth jazz. But it didn't move yeah. my career forward any. Mm -hmm. and, it was, and outside of the uh, smooth jazz record industry, the record was almost unknown. Mm -hmm. You know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So... I knew that if I joined up with a, a European record company, that it would get worldwide played first, worldwide attention. And mm -hmm. that's exactly what happened. People have been calling me from Australia saying they got a copy of the record, and I don't even have a copy of the record. <laughs> me. <laughs> well, well, you know, for those of you who know, for those who know your career, know that you're not shy at trying new things. But the thing that I noticed about this record, and tell me if I'm wrong, you seem, of all the directions you've taken over the, you know, past 40, 50 years, you have, you seem to have a lot of fun with this record. I did for a lot of good reasons. The first one was the one I told you. I was not recording for an American company. So I knew I could be looser in my interpretations on things. I didn't have to worry about the jazz content. 
You know, that was the thing I would always get. You know, where's the jazz? Where's the jazz? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So, and I was down in Nashville, Tennessee. Nothing but great musicians. And they play from the heart. They got cats who might not be able to read a note, but you will never know it when you hear them play. They play like, <laughs> like a classical musician, you know. Everything yeah. means something to that theme that is happening, no matter what it is. But it has a, it has a, uh, a vibe that is only in Nashville. I've noticed that every time I'm down there and I'm listening to radio or records or, or jukebox in the old days, it was used to be jukebox, they all heard that very simple theme, but it was sophisticated in its own right. You know, it, it was um, you, it's something undeniable. They, they got their point over. The story was well told, and they painted a picture with, with the music. And so I knew I was safe in that aspect. And then I heard the, the band that I was going to be using on the record. Mm-hmm. They put together a, 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 a string of musicians that I played with. When I came to the studio the first day, they were rehearsing one of the songs we were going to record that day. I was knocked out by what I heard. And I said, you mean to tell me i got to get in the middle of this? You can't be smoking. <laughs> you know? <laughs> And, uh, and here's the thing. I knew they had a different expectation of me because, you know, my reputation is big. Sure. But in Nashville, guitar is like breathing. <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you're not going to outplay Roy Clark. And, you know, that's <laughs> Chet Atkins. So forget that. You're just yeah. an okay guitar player. Okay, we heard it. <laughs> that kind of thing. You know? But uh, then... The main thing was not to lose the, the vibe, the simplicity of Chuck Berry and even Fat Domino. They had simple themes to their music, which is probably the reason why Crawford was so easily. And uh, I knew better than to try to copy Chuck Berry because there's only one Chuck Berry. To mm-hmm. capture that sound, you have to have his equipment, you know, and uh, I don't have his equipment, and I don't play like Chuck. Wish I could, but I don't. <laughs> you know, I mean, I wish that was one of the things I did, but I don't. I never tried to copy. I can play like him, like him right. a little bit. But first thing you think about it, Chuck Berry only. Yeah, you know, and I like to keep some of my own identity. You know, <laughs> so how do I make what I I got work on this record, which is so different than anything I've done uh, in the industry? Yeah. And it's a brand new record. I want to make an impression, but I don't want to take the songs out of context. And that's always been my thing, to stay in context with the material. Like you mentioned, this masquerade, it is what it is. You know, when I heard um, Leon Russell sing that, I wondered why Tommy wanted me to redo it, you know, because I like Leon's person. <laughs> and he said, no, I think people would like to hear you sing this. I said, you really? And I was, okay, let me, let me. See what I can do. So the only thing I could do different was to add the guitar and uh, and vocal thing playing together, you know. Uh-huh. You know, and that was the only thing different that I did. I I went into a vamp because vamp you can build, you start slow and you can take it any way you want on the vamp, and then you come back to the theme, which is what I did on a lot of records, like on Broadway and so forth. So sure, so sure. it was very much fun. Um. They were expecting me to do that kind of thing on, on this record. We did not go into a band on this record. 
So he kept the melody without fuss, you know, and I had to play in context with the theme and the melody, which was a challenge for me. Sure. But uh, after a couple of days, man, I got used to it. I said, man, this is going to be good, you know, for myself. I said, I hope it come, what I'm hearing actually translates. The producer was so good. Uh, Kevin Shirley, I didn't know him before. I knew of some of his works. I heard some of his works, and they were all good, and they were all very successful. So I was hoping I'd get some of that, you know, and that's what we're, we're doing now. Well, you, you got some of that. In fact, you know, that. Uh, look, I, I, <laughs> I was able to listen to the record knowing it was George Benson. But if I – someone would have played that for me, it would have taken me a while. I would have said, hold on a second. Is that George Benson? <laughs> and, and because it's got that raw southern rock, early roots of rock, certainly That's Fats right. and Chuck Berry, and, and you capture that, and it's going to catch people off guard. And I think what's also very, very cool is that growing interest in vinyl, which is how I was introduced to George Benson, it's available yeah. on vinyl, too. Yeah, it's wonderful, man. Yeah, the first 500 vinyls sold so fast, make your head spin. I said, what? And they said, well, yeah. Mr. Benson, you're going to have to sign these. I said, what? <laughs> well, but, you know, you, that's part of what we do. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you really, yeah, to, to kind of use a, 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 an overused phrase, you really rocked it this time, but definitely Benson style. Yeah, it was fun out there. A lot of fun. And, and I was trying to keep from being boring, you know, because the thing that blues up for me is makes me go into a pattern. Uh, sometimes it, you, you start thinking about stuff that you played, you know, a million times before. Yeah. But uh, I had the ability or the they left me the room to do a little improvisation. And the songs were very short, so that's good. I didn't wear it out. I didn't have to yeah. worry about wearing out ideas, you know. So it worked out very sure. nice. Uh, that's great. So you mind if we go, go back a little bit real early in your career and talk for a few minutes? What you got? So, you know, what a lot of people don't know is how you started so young. I mean, I read the the, the stories, the books, Little Georgie. And mm -hmm. in a relative, Little Georgie, in a really a, a relatively short period of time with, you know, your guitar heroes like, Hank Garland and and others, you you were a young guy when you released the new Boss guitar. I mean, you were you were a baby. <laughs> I was twenty years old then when we did uh, um, the new Boss guitar, and and so that we don't make a mistake, I played it for Wes McCombie, who was the boss of guitar. I remember getting a, a copy of the vinyl. In the mail, you know, the press, press pressing. Uh -huh. And I couldn't wait to play it for West Montgomery. We were in Buffalo, New York, and uh, John Coltrane was in the room. And I said, Wes, they sent you a copy of my new record. He said, go up and get it, man, bring it down. So I brought it down <laughs> to the room, and I played it for him. And then right after I played it for him, he played me his copy of Around Midnight. He said, I just got a copy of my new record. Would you like to hear it? I said, yeah. And he put on <laughs> Round the Night. I said, I said, yeah, man, excuse me, man. I got to go upstairs. He said, where are you going? I said, I'm going upstairs to practice, man. <laughs> you know? yeah, I what he played. I said, wow, man, this cat was, you know, I was never jealous of this thing. I, I, 
he injected something into the industry that, that we, and we need every now and then. Somebody to show us a different way of doing things. You know, take us to whatever. Some people might call it the next level. I just call it, yeah. a, 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 you know, things from a different viewpoint. And yeah. so we had all of that room that he brought. It was the octaves stuck out. Everybody is into octaves now. You know, they play it. Yeah. But that was just one of the things that he did. He did everything well. Great tone. His approach with the thumbs did not take away from his technique. His technique was expert. So he taught us something, and I learned very well from him. You know, just by being around him. Not, I didn't go home and copy him. But I, first of all, I thought that was impossible. Yeah. Well, I didn't even try that. <laughs> well, you know, but um, now I forgot to mention that. Yeah, you mentioned I was very young. Little Georgie Benson worked in nightclubs when I was seven years old. I used to walk the street corners in Pittsburgh at seven years old with my ukulele, and in the nightclubs, since my hands were too small to play guitar, then I played ukulele. My stepfather taught me the first few chords, and I found out I could play a lot of songs with those few chords he taught me. So when the people found that out, they, they stopped me walking down the street with my ukulele because I always had it with me, and they asked me to play something. Once I started playing, a crowd would come around. And my cousin, who was somewhere coming from somewhere else, he saw the crowd, and he thought they were reaching in their pockets. So he took his baseball cap off and passed it around the audience, and boy, did we make a lot of money. <laughs> that was the beginning. And then I went in a nightclub, you know. Uh, uh, about a year or so later, uh, I my hands got large enough to no, It wasn't a year, so I was still seven. I was still seven years old when I worked in the nightclub. I was still playing ukulele. I had not switched wow. to guitar yet. So, wow. yeah, I worked in the nightclub until the police came and broke all that up. Stopped that part of my career. <laughs> Yeah, but but the the rest, as they say, is history. Because one of the things that I've also noticed, and people that have studied your career, they're fascinated with the fact that you always attracted other great music people, and those collaborations, those associations, uh, you know, it, it's it, it's like for example, I, I know that I think it was maybe back in the in the maybe sixties, you were on Verve. Didn't you uh -huh. record for Verve? And yep. did you ever, did you work, 60, so you, did you work with Norman? No, Norman Grant? No. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, he, I worked with uh, George, I can't think of his name, he was African American. I worked with, he oh, was oh, a producer. Uh, you remember him? Guy went to, yeah, he went to Columbia eventually. Um, uh, no, that's another George. That was George Butler. That was George Butler. Maybe this guy's name was not George. I can't remember now, man. But he yeah, did the but, album, but, two albums. Yeah. He did one called uh, Ghibli Gravy. Yeah, and the yeah, other yeah. one was called Goodies. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, 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 you know, I, I went I went back and, you know, I said, you know, before I talk to George, I'm going to go back and listen to some albums I haven't listened to in years. I went back and listened to not only some of your albums, but like Miles in the Sky. Uh, yeah. the, and I was like, wow. So, you know, George has done everything. He's, he's worked with Miles. He's worked with Quincy Jones. He's worked, you know, all these great people that, you know, Creed Taylor, uh, you know, back in the Warner Brothers days, Tommy LaPuma, as we talked about before. 
what was it about someone like a uh, a Creed Taylor that you know you at that point you were getting famous you could pretty much go with whoever you wanted to what were you looking for at the time that said you know what I think I want to record for CTI or you know what I, I know the story you just mentioned about about Warner Brothers with Tommy or uh, you know the the different things that you've done over the years that you know really captured the variety of talent that you have and that your interest is in really doing a lot of different directions. The big moment was I was doing the album, Give It Gravy, and once I was very commercial, we did Walk On By and things like that. And then the other side was devoted to jazz. And I had Herbie Hancock and Ron Carter, and I had, uh, let me see, Billy Cobham on drums. He was brand new then. I was 24, Billy Cobham was 22 years old. I think that's what was happening then. And we did uh, What's New, and then Herbie Hancock and I got into a feud musically on one mm-hmm. of the blues tunes. Did it be that buying it up, buying it up? I had nerve to trade fours with the great Herbie Hancock. Now, if I had thought about that, I would not have done it. <laughs> Ron Carter was knocked out by that, and he called Miles. Miles, you're not going to believe what happened today, man. And that's when Miles called me for a record date. Wow. So that date that we did together with uh, Herbie Hancock and, and Ron Carter probably sparked Miles' interest in, in uh, putting me on his record. And it was it was yeah. quite a, a feat, you know, to be on this record because Miles had such a reputation and he lived up to oh, yeah. all the time. He never stopped being Miles ever, <laughs> ever, ever. You know, I when I when I got to hang with Miles one night, uh, we had just done a photo session. In fact, that photo session, that one of the photos from that session for a jazz's cover, is the re- most current cover on newsstands now, where that picture of Miles with his finger to his mouth. Yeah. So we shot that in his house. Um, and, and, and I, you know, I, I used it as an opportunity to meet Miles because I wanted to show him the photos. This was all pre-internet. There was no JPEGs. It was contact sheets and 11 by 14 sheets. And I went and showed them to Miles and Miles loved them. And that became the classic session, but it also gave me the opportunity to meet Miles. Yeah. But, um, yeah, he was, he was great. He was quite, you know, the, he was. So, well, when he was, he was trying to get me in his band at the time. And he was, sure he was. was coming from Creed Taylor. Um, my manager told me, he said, George, Miles has been calling you. He said, I think, I kept saying, well, what does he want? Because we already did the record. And he said, I think he's trying to get you to join his band. <laughs> Miles never did make a, uh, a formal request for me to join his band. But that was the rumor out, and my manager was saying it to me, and the record company was saying it to me. But he also said this. He said, Joe, but you can't join this band. I said, what do you mean? Miles Davis is the number one jazz musician in the world. That would be a great giant leap for me in my career. He said, Mm -hmm. the record company says that you're going to be bigger than Miles. I said, (laughs) what fool was that that said that? (laughs) You know? Bigger than Miles. Get out of here. (laughs) But, uh, yeah. That they, and Lee yeah. Taylor, the reason why he was interesting to me is because, don't forget, he made Barcelona famous. 
with oh, yeah. productions, you know, with the with the, uh, the great Stanley Stan against and uh, Charlie Bird. Yep. And then he, he made Jimmy Smith a household word with Walk on the Wild Side. Absolutely. And he made Wes Montgomery a star, a household word with his beautiful recordings, you know, going out of my head and so forth and so on. So, man, I was, to me, it was a privilege to, to work with someone who understood what it is I was trying to accomplish, trying to make an impression on people who go to the store and spend their hard-earned money on records. I wanted to give them something outstanding. And Creed Taylor understood that. We never did achieve that. A couple of records sold well, but he set me up for Warner Brothers to become interested in me. And I think that was the, that was the move that, that made all the difference in the world. But it had not been for Creed Taylor, I never would have made it to Warner. Hey everyone, it's Brian again. Sorry to take you away from the interview, but I wanted to take a quick moment to thank this episode's sponsors. They include the DC Jazz Festival taking place right now, June 7th through the 16th in Washington, DC. The festival features headliners like Stefan Harris, Snarky Puppy, John Batiste, and many more. For more info, visit dcjazzfest.org. We'd also like to thank the Clifford Brown Jazz Festival taking place in downtown Wilmington, Delaware, June 19th through 22nd, and featuring headliners Branford Marsalis and Terrence Blanchard. For more information, visit CliffordBrownJazzFest.org. Another thank you to the 2019 Norfolk Waterfront Jazz Festival in downtown Norfolk Waterfront, Virginia, celebrating its 37th year. The fest is set for August 23rd through 24th. That's the perfect time to chill to the legendary sounds of top national smooth jazz and R&B recording artists. To check out the artist lineup, head on over to our website and click that Norfolk Waterfront Jazz Fest banner. We'd also like to thank Chesky Records, the premier audiophile record label, whose goal is to create the illusion of live musicians in a real three-dimensional space. They've got a new release out by bassist and vocalist Casey Abrams. A few of you might remember him from his American Idol days. High Res Audio is available on HD Tracks, and you can also pick the album up on Amazon or iTunes. Another big thanks to Blue Note Records. They've got a new album out right now by Nora Jones. It's called Begin Again. And just today, June 7th, they'll be releasing a new album by pianist Jamie Cullum called Taller. Check them out at bluenote.com. And thank you to Smoke Sessions Records, who on June 28th will be releasing a new album by drum legend Al Foster called Inspirations and Dedications. Go to smokesessionsrecords.coms to browse this and all of their recent releases. Thanks also to Deezer, an online streaming service that offers more than 53 million tracks and over 100 million playlists. To check out the playlist that we curate on Deezer, head on over to deezer.com and search for Jazz Is. And thank you to the New Jersey Performing Arts Center in Newark on August 9th is a performance by R&B standouts Anthony Hamilton and Jasmine Sullivan. For tickets and more info, visit njpac, that's njpac.org. Another thanks to the Adrian Arsh Center for the Performing Arts here in Miami, Florida. On June 15th, they'll be hosting the Beach Tone Jazz Festival, featuring Grammy Award-winning Bossa Nova star Elian Elias, guitar legend Yamandu Costa, and legendary percussionist Sammy Figueroa. For more info, visit arshtcenter.org. 
Lastly, we'd like to shout out the Navy Band Commodore's 50th anniversary celebration concert taking place September 22nd at 3 p.m. at the Rachel M. Schlesinger Concert Hall and Arts Center in Alexandria, Virginia. If you're in the area, stop by and check it out. All right, that's enough for me. Let's go ahead and get back into this fascinating discussion between George Benson and jazz's publisher, Michael Fagan. Well, you know, the, the, the classic albums that you made on CTI, you know, Abbey Road uh, album, the uh, White Rabbit. Um, I believe when I go back and look at what was happening at the time, they were seminal jazz records because they had crossover potential, but they were so authentic and they were they were still so rooted in jazz that you know I, I didn't I didn't read what was happening back at the time. I, back then I, I I was I was ten years old, but. Um, I could only imagine the jazz critics where they were listening to this record and say, man, Benson's such a great guitarist, but, you know, this is really kind of pop. And I think it may have introduced people to that crossover. It became important years later. When I put it out, when I recorded those albums, like the other side of that room, which I loved the recording, I was done live, you know. It was the, uh-huh. the, uh, the chamber orchestra was in the studio with us. We did it all live. And uh, I was very proud of the record, but I knew I was going to face some critics. Even when Creed Taylor asked me to record it, he called me in the office one day and he said, George, I want you to listen to this record and the Abbey Road by the Beatles. He said, tell me if there's anything on here that you like. <laughs> he wanted to record something from that album. So I went home and I, I listened to it. I, I came back the next day and I said, you know, Creed, everything sounds good on here. Everything on here is good. <laughs> Meaning, pick something and we'll try it, you know. He oh, said, wow. we'll do the whole album. I said, what? Because <laughs> I knew that was going to accept the the jazz critics were going to eat me up. And they did. <laughs> yeah. But, but, but when they go when back, Breezen came out. Yeah. Oh, now it's good because Breezen came out. And people wanted to find out, well, where did George come from? Because I never heard of him before. They were saying, right? And uh, they I was one of those guys. <laughs> yeah. They discovered <laughs> White Rabbit. And the other side of that, they said, yep, he belongs in that spot. Yep, yeah, he should have been here a long time ago. So so that yeah. was the thing. But it took a while to cross over because there was such a resistance in it, you know, in the industry. Sure. Nobody sure. wanted to hear us do Beatles songs, you know. So let's – I want to ask you about your version of The Greatest Love of All. Now, I'll, maybe I'll start by telling you a story. So – after we did our first cover with you, I, I don't know if you recall, you did a photo session with Jeff Sedlick, which, by the way, is the same photographer who shot Miles with that oh. classic shot. So Jeff, who came to visit you, and I, I think he, I think he saw you in L.A. I don't think it was in New Jersey. Um, and he did that photo session, which is one of my favorite photo sessions. In fact, in the new issue of Jazz Is, I, I say this is my favorite George Benson photo session. Because uh, we show the classic photo sessions we've done over the years, but after that came out, that issue, um, you, you were at a festival and I was at the same festival and we ran into each other at the bar, and we just kind of walked over to a table and you kind of looked at the table in the corner, uh, and you sat down and I could tell you sat down so that you wouldn't face out to the bar, uh, so that you could have some privacy. And I was sitting facing the whole bar so people could see me, but no one recognized me anyway. Um, and 
over the bar room speakers came uh, started playing Whitney Houston, Houston's version of Greatest Love of All. And I was sitting there, and I could tell you were thinking. And I don't know if you remember this, but you actually stood up from your seat, and you started to sing. And I, I was taken aback by that because I was like, oh, I, thought, I thought you wanted a little privacy. <laughs> but just to mention that little story, I was you did the, by what she had come because I had met her on the street corner, uh, uh, right next to the Empire State Building. There was a barber shop I used to take my kids down there, and I uh-huh. was either coming out of that salon or she was in that neighborhood, and she stopped me on the sidewalk and she almost screamed, "George, this is my favorite artist, and my favorite song is the greatest love of all." I said, "Yeah, yeah, yeah, yeah." She told me her mother was Sissy Houston. And I said, oh, yeah, I know your mom. And she said, yeah, I'm going to record that song one day, she said. And I said, wow. I said yeah, the chances of that, is, you know, very slim. When I first heard that song on the radio, I said, I wonder if that's that same kid. And sure enough, it was. <laughs> I said, wow, don't doubt yourself in this world because it can happen. Oh, yeah, the record went on to do some amazing things. I always loved her version of the record, too. I thought it was outstanding that she could take a man, a song that was meant for a guy, and turn it into a classic. And, you know, for everybody. It was wonderful. So tell me about your work with Quincy, because, you know, some of my – I really enjoyed those records, obviously more pop, but they just – they clicked. And I know – at around the same time, you also did something with, uh, oh gosh, I'm blanking on his name, the guy from the song Maniac, uh, Michael Cimbello. Oh, yeah, Michael. Yeah, Michael Cimbello. Yeah, great songwriter. And a, and a yeah. good player, too. Yeah. In, in fact, the other day I was, um, again, listening to your discography. I was listening to 2020, which I know that record you did with Michael. And, um, and I, I just, I was, you know, singing with my horrible voice, but you can hear it because I had the audio turned up so loud. And just enjoying and reminiscing an 2020 an album of incredibly beautiful pop, upbeat tunes, couple couple more ballads. But then you kind of switched it up and you did Beyond the Sea. It's sort of like, I'm going to throw this little twist in there. And that really just grabbed me. Yeah, we had just lost Basie, and one of my great friends from the Basie band was uh, Freddie Green. And we had the big schedule in New Jersey at an obscure studio, but we had the the Basie orchestra there. And they said, George, uh, Freddie can't get here. His plane won't get here until tomorrow morning. I said, cancel the date. Let's do it tomorrow afternoon. So we held the date up because the Basie orchestra, without Pretty green. That's, uh, and that's pretty tough, especially on me because I had never heard it without him. So, um, so it was a great thing to do. And I met the guy who wrote that song originally. Wow. Uh-huh. Yeah. And he said, Le, that's Le, the Le version of my yeah. song. And I said, no, no, no. I said, no. Uh, uh, what's the guy's name? The, 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 the youngster who did that song years ago first. Oh, I mean, the yeah. And uh, was it Bobby Darren? Bobby Darren. So I said that to him. I said, no, the Bobby Darren. He said, oh, I like the Bobby Darren version very much. 
He said, but your version is better. Well, you know what, George? I I agree with him, not you. I think your version is the best version. (laughs) (laughs) So, so you're Quincy Jones, you mentioned, right? Yeah, tell me about Q. By the way, Q helped me in the music business early on when nobody cared about me or knew who I was. He was he was my my fan, my ally. He helped me so much. Yeah, that's what kind of guy he is. Well, he said to me one thing. He said, George, he made me make a choice. He said, do you want to uh, cut the greatest jazz record in the world, or do you want to go for the throat? And those were his words to use. I said, Quincy, go for the throat, man. You only get this opportunity once in life, you know, to make a difference. That's right. So he put together what he called his A-team. Oh, yeah. You know, with a, a, a great drummer. Um, what's his, he's, got, he's got an yeah. initial. Uh, great drummer. Uh, initial. Yeah, he uses them on all of his records, all of Michael Jackson's records. J.R. John Robinson. J.R. John Robinson. Okay. Yeah, yeah. J.R. They call him J.R. And uh, Gregory Fillin' Gaines. And yeah. uh, and then the, the Johnson brother, Lewis Johnson on bass. Yep. You couldn't miss with that. If you wanted to be modern and up to date at that time in the music business, that was the team. Now all we needed was a great songwriter. And Quincy had already locked into him uh, from from England, who wrote all the songs for Michael, you know, the, the Smash tunes. Oh, uh, Ted. Hmm? Was it Rod Temperton? Yeah, Rod Temperton. And so I was unfamiliar with, with who was writing those songs. And then I met Rod Temperton. And he was tough on me. He said, no, no, no. He said, no, you're singing your melody. I want you to sing my melody, the one I wrote. Sing that. And so I got stiffened up and I sang his melody. And then he said, no. Loosen up and do something. I said, but you just got me from loosening up. He said, well, no, this is the time to loosen up. You got the melody down, now loosen up. <laughs> and at first, I, I thought it was pretty harsh, you know. But I, I got the point. And yeah. we had the album finished. And the album was done, and I had been in the studio every day for about a month. And I, the next day, I was on my way home, and Quincy called me in the middle of the night. George... You can't leave, man. We got one more song. I said, no, what you know, man. Oh, man, I've been waiting home for a month. I'm going home. He said, all you have to do, we got everybody's here in the studio. We got all the main parts already done. And we got the guys standing by in case you need them. He said, it's going to be easy. So I went there, and it was Give Me the Night. Wow. Can you imagine if I had done that album without that song in it? It would, change, it would change the title of the album for sure. Yeah. And <laughs> that song is very, very popular even today. This is oh, almost yeah. 40 years later. Well, you know, I'll tell you what, that, yeah, what that song does, when that, wherever you are, when that song comes on, you just can't sit still. <laughs> it just makes you move. Um, Wow, that's great. Well, I mean, Quincy tricked me, you know, into doing that voice. You know, when he had that song, he started 
I had sang it regularly, you know, with my trying to put the, the three the horses I could on it. Uh-huh. He said, George, try one more time. And I got that said, Quincy, this ain't going nowhere. I just went in by stock and song. He said, George, do me a take like that. I said, No. <laughs> I said, I know you ready to put that on red. He said, No, I'm not just gonna put it on red. I just wanna hear it one time. So I did a whole thing uh, went in back down. And sure enough, he said he the test pressing and he had that voice on it. And I said to myself, boy, probably I'll let him trick me into that. But after hearing it three times, I got used to it. And then I took it off. As soon as I yeah. took it off, one of my sons came to me, and he was a little boy, and he was about 10 or 11 years old. He said, Dad, can you play that song again? I said, what song? He said, the one that goes, all right, tonight. And I knew I had a smash on my head. My kids never asked me anything about my music, ever. Wow. And so, I said, wow. <laughs> yeah, from the mouth of babes, right? Yeah. You know, that's Excuse me. What are you no, saying, brother? I said that was was that Patty doing that background? Patty uh, Austin. That's Patty Austin. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. She tore it up. The whole record. She was my support on the whole record. She's excellent in what she does. You know everything. She does everything well. Well, Quincy had to also finagle with the record company because they didn't know that voice. They never heard that guy who sang "Give Me the Night" because I was using that crazy voice. And so he asked them to write down on a piece of paper what they thought was, you know, uh, you know how they thought the, the songs lined up. What was number one from their point of view? Give Me the Night never came up number one on anybody's list. And here's what Quincy did. Because he was so big in the industry with Michael Jackson record selling 7 million copies the first time. Of course, now that same record, or not the same record, but the next record he did with Michael went to 111 million copies. So at seven million, they trusted him. You know, they said, well, we can't listen. Quincy Jones and George Benson both. So he said to them, after seeing this, he said, oh, I see where you picked uh, this song for number one. He said, we're going to go with Give Me the Light. <laughs> and they said, oh, yeah, oh, 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 okay. They didn't want to, but they did it because he said it. <laughs> and here's uh, another thing. He's smart again. He said, I know when I put this record out there, not they're not going to recognize George's voice, and they're going to turn the record over. So he put an instrumental on, sec- on side B. Mm-hmm. And that was, uh, da 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 Yeah, yeah. That became a hit. <laughs> <laughs> he hated that, but it became a hit. Wow. And by mistake, because on side A, that was listed number one. Some disc jockeys made a mistake and thought they were getting that song because it was listed side one. And so they put on Give Me the Night for about 30 seconds. Oh, oh, well, I made a mistake. Let me turn this over. And people would call in from the, from the you know, from the field and say, man, what's that song you just turned over? You just took off. You know, that was a mistake. He said, man, put that on. Put that record on. <laughs> but you know, that there's something about the, the magic of that song, George, the first two bars, it just, you're like, what? What was that? <laughs> and it, just, it just pulls you in. That was great. I, I, I just, I really enjoyed that record so much. I remember back in the vinyl days, I played it over and over and over again. So 
couple more things before I, I let you go, George. The, um, I know back years ago, uh, you got a honorary doctorate from the Berkeley College of Music. So I, I'm sorry I haven't addressed you as Dr. Benson. Yeah. Um, but, but that, that, that's wonderful. And, and, and I know that before we go that you've had so many Grammy awards. I mean, for whatever, you know, I, some people argue what the Grammys mean. They mean a lot when the industry is paying attention to someone who's had so many great records. And I, I remember when I looked up how many Grammys you won, um, in the jazz world that in top records, it's, you're like at the top. And that, that is just incredible uh, and uh, a testament to the work and the great music that you put out for so many years. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was um, you beat me. You've got seven kids. I have six. Uh, seven boys. Seven boys. Wow. <laughs> seven boys. No well, daughters. I can tell you no daughters. I have four daughters, two boys. Uh, my boys are, are, I always say my boys are easier. Um, but the, uh, yeah, right. <laughs> but, um, I, I know that you're a family man and, and one of the things that I've always loved and respected about you is as big and as popular as you got, you always, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, you always kept it clean. I mean, you sung about, you know, relationships and romance, but it was always classy and clean. And I always kind of said, well, that's because, George is a family guy, and he's very spiritual. Would you agree? I've been with my wife for this is the 54th year. Congrats. 54th year. I do have eight granddaughters, though, man, and one grandson. So, uh, like my cousin said it better than I can say it. He said, nature fights back, man, because I was seven boys. So now I end up with... Eight granddaughters and one grandson. It's a nature fights back. I've been telling you that, man. <laughs> you know? It's, it's, it's yeah, so true. I, I love families. I always knew that I was going to be a family man. And I knew I was going to have a lot of sons. So it wow. happened that way. So I was very, very happy with that. But time goes by so fast, man. It's hard for me to believe where we are in history right now. Because it's like maybe, it feels like a few months after I came to New York. And I came to New York to live. Uh, under Jimmy Boyd's management in 19, late 1965. Wow. And that's wow. the same time I met my, my wife, my second wife. And did you, did you, have you been in uh, North Jersey since then? No. I just sold that house, though. That I oh, I didn't know. Years. I just sold it. But I was living on Maui, Hawaii for a while. That was my second home. And then uh, I moved to where I live now is um, Paradise Valley, Arizona. Wow. Uh, so I wow. had some, some nice places, you know. And I moved over here to get away from the hustle and bustle because they were wearing me out in the, on the East Coast, you know. It, 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 can, be, it can be a rat race, and, and certainly Arizona is a place to chill. Yeah. yeah. Well... That's been where I'm in my life now because I'm getting ready to, you know, I'm semi-retired. And this is the place where they got a lot of doctors and things here, you know, a lot of medical systems, great medical systems. Yeah. Yeah. And and sunshine almost every day and fresh, dry air so you get no bacteria from from, uh, mucus in your throat and stuff like that. It's all 
clean and you know and, and your breathing is easier. So that's why I'm here. Oh, that's great. Well, let me just practice say we are here. Yeah. Practice. <laughs> I practice. Well, and and, and 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 you probably don't get interrupted as much. I think that's right. <laughs> everywhere in my house, and uh, I'm looking at one right now, which I'm gonna grab when I get off this phone. <laughs> well, anyway, my friend, we are here exactly. with music icon George Benson. His latest album, "Walking to New Orleans," is destined to be another Benson classic. It's going to be available on vinyl, CD, and streaming services on April 26th. For now, go to georgebenson.com and check it all out. George, it was great to have you on the show. Thank you so much. I appreciate it, man.